Welcome to the Season 5 finale of Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to bring you musical inspiration and practical composing tips. Today's episode features Colleen Birch, an ethnomusicologist and violinist currently studying Romanian folk music. In this episode, we talk about what goes into being a good ethnomusicologist, and she shares what she's learned in observing Romanian violinists. When a somebody's learning a tune and they're making mistakes, I don't get the sense that they think of it in terms of like, well, you're making that mistake. They're focusing on the energy. Are you bringing energy to the music? Are you contributing to the sound and the mood of the moment? Colleen also shares what she's learned in playing Transylvanian music with her bands Saska and Orchestar Bazime, including how to play in weird time signatures like 2216. It's kind of funny to talk about time signatures in folk music, right? Because it, nobody wrote it out that way. So it, it's, it's, they're derived from dances, people dancing, and kind of a prolonged conversation over hundreds of years between the dancers and the musicians. Before we get into this episode, I have an important announcement. This is going to come as a heartbreaking shock to many of you loyal listeners, but I have to come out and say it. 2016 will be the final year of the Composer Quest podcast. I wrestled with this decision for a while, and I've decided that I really want this podcast to end on a high note while I'm still passionate about making it. I've seen too many podcasts sadly fizzle out or lose quality over time, and I want to have a solid plan for the final year of the podcast. To those of you who've been tuning in regularly, and especially to those of you donating as patrons... I hope you know that you've inspired me to make this podcast as awesome as possible over the past three years. There's no way I would have kept it up this long without all the support from you, so I really, really appreciate it. So why am I ending the show, you might be wondering? Well, I can't help but feel somewhat selfish for this decision, but I've been feeling like I'm gearing up for a life change of some sort. What that will be, I'm not exactly sure, but I've mentioned my newfound passion of board game design on the show, and I'm feeling like I need to fully commit to trying out this path. This month I started an internship at Fantasy Flight Games, which is really fun, and I hope it might lead to more opportunities like that. But that said, game design is potentially even less lucrative than composing. So that's the risk I'm taking, but that's kind of what this whole podcast was built around in the first place, taking a risk and leading a creative life. It is cliche to say it, but you only have one life to live, so why not try out whatever you can? I think. Side note, I started getting the Bon Jovi song It's My Life in My Head recently. Now those are some terrible, terrible lyrics. Anyways, for someone who put it a little more eloquently, let's turn to Alan Watts. He says, Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is, you can eventually become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. This was the philosophy that sparked me to start the podcast in the first place, and now it's sparking me to try a new adventure in game design. So at this point you might be wondering, what's going to happen to Composer Quest in 2016? Well, I have a plan, and I hope it's an exciting one. I'll be taking a three-month break from January through March to get interviews set up and recorded for Season 6. Then April through June, I'll be releasing Season 6 of the podcast, which will be the final regular season. I know at least one guest already, and it's going to be cool. Then, my grand pie-in-the-sky dream for Season 7, a Composer Quest farewell tour. Here's the idea. I travel around the world for three months, visiting you Composer Quest listeners, conducting interviews, exploring music from different cultures, and making an epic weekly podcast episode documenting the process. I'd also love to create a new song each week as a collaboration with my host composers and weave the song's creation into each episode. What do you think, listeners? Could it happen? I know I'm excited about this idea, and I hope you would be too. Maybe I could come visit you along the way. If you're interested in hosting me for any length of time, please fill out my Google form at composerquest.com tour. Once I hear from everyone, I'll try planning a route and see what's possible. I know off the bat that I'll need to raise some travel funds beyond the Patreon contributions. 
Don't get me wrong, patrons, your donations have been extremely helpful thus far. But a three-month world tour is kind of a different project. So, to my loyal listeners, if you think you'd be willing to chip in to make this final season happen in the fall, please let me know so I can plan a Kickstarter project. I put a question about your potential donation level on the Google form, again at composerquest.com tour. So, I'd really appreciate it, and thank you in advance for considering helping me with this crazy idea. I think it would be the perfect finale to the podcast, going on a literal composer quest around the world. Am I nervous about this idea? Of course. I have no idea what to expect by taking composer quests on the road, and three months is a pretty long time to be traveling, but the unknowns are actually the most exciting part about it for me. I feel like this will break new podcasting ground, and I hope you can be a part of it too. Well, this has been my longest monologue yet, but I had to say it. In summary, make sure to fill out my Google form at composerquest.com tour by the end of January 2016. Then I'll plan out this tour and announce the Kickstarter at the start of Season 6 in April. Again, I really appreciate you listeners, and I hope this world tour announcement is exciting enough to balance out the bittersweet news of me retiring Composer Quest. It's been a really fun ride so far, and I'm looking forward to making 2016 a great final year for Composer Quest. So, on the theme of world traveling and exploring other musical cultures, let's get on to my talk with Colleen Birch. Colleen, thanks so much for coming on Composer Quest. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So right now you're in Romania. Yes. I'm specifically in uh, the heart of Transylvania, uh, in the kind of the regional capital called Cluj-Napoca. Cool. And Transylvania, I for some reason I, I looked it up and I was thinking it was a city, but it's more a region, right? Yeah, Transylvania is, uh, is one of three large regions that make up Romania. Mm-hmm. It's quite big. Yeah. So... Tell me about what brought you to Romania in the first place. Well, so I've been playing Romanian folk music for a while. Actually, I started playing, so this will all tie together uh, eventually. Uh, I actually started playing Hungarian folk music back in Minneapolis, actually. And um, in Transylvania, there's quite an ethnic diversity of Hungarians, Romanians, and Roma, which is kind of the PC term for gypsies. And the three different ethnic groups really don't mix as much as you would think that they would for having lived together for so many years. They've lived together for over a thousand years. Um, But for some reason, the three groups kind of keep to themselves in terms of uh, music and culture, and they do their own thing. Hmm. So anyway, I started playing Hungarian folk music, and that led me to uh, to learning about Romanian folk music as well. So I started traveling here for shorter trips, you know, and traveling around to different villages and um, and meeting folk musicians in the villages, recording them. Hmm. Uh, and you know, the music is beautiful, so it's kind of the draw. Yeah. What was that experience like, recording people in these different villages and? Were yeah. they appreciative to have recordings made of them? or? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, the weird thing is that here in Transylvania, it's kind of become a little tiny industry over the years. People from Western Europe, Japan, Australia, and some Americans and Canadians have been coming over for the, for the last maybe 20 or 30 years and going around and doing this, um, kind of collecting and so it's kind of become a little mini industry, which is good for the the villagers, you know, because it's a very poor country. So anyway, they kind of are used to foreigners coming over and asking to record them. But even even so, it's still incredibly homey, you know, like a villagey 
you know, you walk into, or you no, you don't walk, you drive into a village and they're still using horses and wagons. I mean, not everybody, but you see them regularly, dirt roads and, you know, tiny houses, you know, they had bathrooms retrofitted in them because, you know, they're 400 years old houses and the musicians have been very welcoming. Um, but we, you know, but we pay them because it's a honor for us to be going in and being able to collect their music with recording equipment. Yeah. So was I reading that you ended up getting a grant or something to go through those recordings and kind of analyze them and yeah, yeah. catalog them? Or yeah. So um, I received two different Minnesota State Arts Board um, Artist Initiative grants, one in 2010 and one in 2013. The one in 2010, I used the grant money to create one of my band's first CDs that was based off of some of the collection that I, that we, that we did together uh, in Transylvania. So that was the first grant. The second grant in 2013, it was more of a, a grant to help me organize the hours and hours of music that I had collected and create a, more of a database. So that was easier for me to, uh, to get to and analyze and use Cool. So your band, was that Orchestar Bezime that you so, did those songs with? or sh- it, it was actually with Saska. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah cool. So and that, so, <laughs> oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so um, Saska is, the, is a band that is dedicated to performing this particular type of music. Um, it's a string trio band that's common in Transylvania. And so the instrumentation is a double bass, a three string viola that is called, it's called a contra. It never plays a melody. It's only chords. It only plays rhythm and then a violin. thought it was interesting that the contra viola is like played sideways it seems like yeah times or like tipped tilted so that i guess is that for making it easier for bowing reasons or uh actually probably more so for the left hand uh because so the deal is the the bridge on the viola is whittled flat there's only three strings you take the C string off the viola, and so hmm. you're left with the G string, the D string, and then another G string tuned up to an A. So the pitches are like bum, 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 something like that. I didn't quite sing it right, right? So it's. I'll just out of tune in. It's okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't planning on singing in the interview. I didn't practice that. Uh, but anyway, um, it's a chordal instrument. So you play all three strings at the same time. So the playing position really helps your left hand so that all, you know, you can play all three strings with your hand at the same time. So, um, and partly for the rhythm too, for the bowing, cause it's really the, uh, the rhythm keeper as well. the violinist in that group are you doing mostly lead melodies and that kind of thing or yeah like the violin player is the only melody right so it's um there's a a really vast repertoire that's kind of categorized by village and then also by dance 
So, for example, my band plays music from a village called Palatka, and Palatka has a set repertoire that they've been known to play. And so, like, the first dance, a slow dance, would be called an akastoge. And then you go into a chardash. And then you go into the frish chardash, the fast chardash. And all the different villages have kind of their own set repertoire and their own set of dances that they like to pass down from generation to generation. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure there's other places in the world that have this really localized thing, but yeah, pretty different than yeah. American <laughs> culture now. With Is it because they're just not heard on the radio and dispersed around or that kind of thing? So so that's the idea. I mean, in all honesty, a lot of the tunes are kind of shared, right? It's not as cut and dry. The idea is that it used to be that everything was really separated, you know, and then, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, that things started to get mixed up a little bit more because, you know, people were, be, you know, coming into contact with one another, especially with the advent of radio and then t- TV and now the internet. Um, I am kind of of the position that it's never been cut and dry. You know, I've, I've always been of the mindset that people have always mixed and have always shared. People have always traveled, especially musicians who get, you know, hired to play at weddings and funerals and, Sure. So I don't think it's completely cut and dry, but that's kind of the narrative that that people follow. Yeah. What is your exact research that you're doing? Because I know you you got a Fulbright to study over there. Yeah. So my research is um, specifically on the violin players. And what I'm looking at is how the violin players play and how their style and ornamentation reflects their ethnic identity, national identity, in some cases, class identity, um, this kind of thing. Hmm. Very cool. I I was enjoying checking out your blog, stringmuse.com. Yes. And I, I saw you just recently posted an article about how the rhythm varies like very slightly between Hungarian and Romanian style. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that one little rhythmic cell is supposedly labeled Hungarian and a different rhythmic cell is um, supposedly labeled Romanian. You know, these things are really real here. I mean, people really make those designations Um, in my blog post that I, that I wrote, I'm questioning how that idea developed and and how that's getting passed around as part of their identity narratives in music. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit to go into right now, but yeah, if anybody's interested to check out the blog post and read a little bit about it. Yeah. Well, it was interesting too, because it's like, to my ear, when you had the recording of your professor, I think, demonstrating the two different versions. Mm-hmm. It was really hard for me to pick out the difference. Absolutely. You know, I've been studying this music for a number of years, and I and I play it, and it's hard for me to to pick it out too. I can I can hear it, and I I understand what he's saying. But if I were not focusing on it, it probably would just kind of wash over me, and I wouldn't even realize that people are playing it, you know, very slightly differently. Yeah. I'm kind of curious 
like after playing in this style for so long, mm-hmm. um, what are some some things you've learned about the style that you can, I don't know, that you can easily tell the difference between like one region over another or? Um, right now, what I'm learning about, and it's just because of the current field work I've been in, in the middle of, um, I'm understanding a little bit better the differences between institutionalized versions of folk music compared to village forms of the music rather than, um, you know, separate um, regions. So, for example, like the Romanian institutionalized version of the folk music is very clean. It's very classical. You know, we're taught to not make any scratches whatsoever. You know, don't scratch your bow. You know, (laughs) and um, the ornaments have to be crisp and clean. And that is very different than what I experienced in the villages um, in the past, where the musicians are oftentimes autodidact, they're self-teaching styles and, and, and learning from their fathers or their uncles or their grandfathers, and they kind of enter the music sideways. I don't know how else to explain this, but instead of learning a tune from you know, the bottom and building it up until they can get all the notes and all the rhythms uh, with perfect technique. Instead of doing that, they know the tune, they come at it from the side and they work their technique out until the song comes out. So it's not this hierarchy of, well, first you have to hit all the notes correctly. Okay, now let's polish up all the rhythms. And then, you know, later on, let's add the soul to the music, right? It's not like this. It's kind of energy and soul kind of just blasting its way into the melody. And then they work out the fi- the notes and the fingers and the rhythms from the inside out, kind of, until hmm. they have the melody figured out. So I guess even though they're maybe like making a lot of mistakes, I guess, I'm guessing you would still say that like there are inherent things that are helping define their their personality or or what what exactly were you saying that uh... (laughs) yeah um so yeah it's hard to determine like what are mistakes right and and what is just a a process of developing the music itself right because you know folk music is weird in that it's folk music because it wasn't written down in the first place right it's yeah. stuff that just gets passed around. So when somebody is learning a tune and they're making mistakes, I don't get the sense that they think of it in terms of like, well, you're making that mistake, you're making that mistake, you're making that mistake. It's it's not. It's a different focus. They're they're focusing on the energy. Are you bringing energy to the to the music? Are you um, contributing to the sound and the mood of the moment? How old do you think some of these folk songs are that are passed down? Is there any way to say (laughs) on some of them? Um, You know, I think there are Hungarian academics and Romanian academics that have tried to pin down dates on some of these things, but it's not something that I know about really. Yeah. Are there people in these smaller villages who are composing their own tunes or things like that? Yeah, there are some. Um, It's interesting. um, A lot of the ones that I heard are classically influenced. So, for example, there was this guy named Neti Shandor. He passed away, I think, in 2006 already. But, you know, he has a son, and he sent his son to the uh, Music Academy, and his son would bring back classical exercises like Kreutzer, for example, which is a, a typical violin studies um, book, etude book. And um, Neti, the dad, would hear his son play these classical etudes and pieces, and he would start composing his own folk tunes kind of based on those etudes. 
So it does, mm. it definitely does cool. happen. And uh, a number of those pieces have worked its way uh, into the standard repertoire of those villages. Were those uh, some things you got recordings of back in 2008? Or? Um, not in 2008, but I think I have a recording of one tune that I'm thinking of in particular of a guy from that area playing it in Michigan. <laughs> oh, cool. He, he was he was hired to to teach at a camp and he and they flew him over and and I think he played that tune if I I think I have a recording of that somewhere yeah Are there any recordings you've made that stand out as being like a favorite um that I've played or that I've recorded um, that you've recorded, I guess. Yeah. From the- yeah. Um, I have a definite favorite, this, um, group of guys from a village called Budesht. One of the reasons I like it so much is that this particular violin player's playing style is so completely different than anything else I heard in Transylvania. He had these, uh, this way of playing that was more like sliding his fingers across the strings rather than being very, you know, sharp and articulate. Yet at the same time, he had great intonation and such a great command over his instrument, even though he was using this kind of sliding technique back and forth across the strings. thing that impressed me so much about them and this is going to sound so completely cliche but there was something about the soul there was something about the feeling that the entire band brought to the table that I can't you know you just can't put your finger on it but there was like a truth to their playing to their sound to what they were doing I guess for your work, I'm sure you you transcribe some of these tunes and melodies, um, yeah. which seems like a really daunting task to me. <laughs> After listening to these songs that have like strange rhythms, and yeah, what is that process like for you? Yeah, um, well, for my bands, I have to admit that you know I don't spend tons of time transcribing well what I end up doing is transcribing quickly getting the nuts and the bolts you know trying to make sure that I have the right time signature figured out that gets us you know the closest to the feel of the song and of course the notes and the rhythms but I don't transcribe well enough you know things like ornaments and stylistic kinds of things so jotting down just the nuts and the bolts actually forces us to listen deeper and for you know a longer duration while we're working on the music. Uh, I don't know if I'd made any sense when I just said that, but what I what I mean is that you know sometimes if you transcribe something so well that you don't need to listen to the recording anymore, you think you don't need to listen to the recording anymore then you're just staring at the piece of paper and you're recreating what you're trying to remember off of the piece of paper and you get close or whatever. We don't want to do that. You know, we want to make ourselves keep listening to the recording because every time you listen, you hear something new. Every time you listen, it gets a little bit deeper into your musical body. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you do original melodies with Saska? Not with Saska. You know, the goal in that band is really to try to, I don't want to say the word preserve because I don't feel like we're in a position to preserve anything, but our our goal is to recreate 
the village music as closely as we possibly can and represent that in Minnesota. Orchestra Bazime does a, a bit more of writing our own music, and that's kind of where I allow myself more uh, a freedom in terms of, of creating my own stuff, yeah. Yeah. So how, how does that work with that group, composing as a group? and? Yeah, yeah. So the group has uh, a number of composers in it already. And what we've been doing is uh, an individual will write a lead sheet you know, with the melody and the chords and bring it to the group. Uh, and then we play it over and over as a group. And, you know, bit by bit, um, people will start picking out things that they want to do with it, add a harmony line here or there. You know, somebody might decide to drop out in a certain section to give the overall thing a different texture, right? So we start, really, we orchestrate it oftentimes together as a band. Cool. And are you trying to, when you're orchestrating it and arranging it, are you trying to stay true to one region of the the Balkans? Because I know there's like maybe five or six countries styles that you you do in that group. Yeah, that group, we do quite a bit more of like a far-flung smorgasbord <laughs> is that the word i'm looking for um, sure <laughs> <laughs> so it depends on the tune that the the person brings so for example katrina our clarinet player wrote a bulgarian pravo a couple of years ago and so yeah when she brought that pravo we pretty much tried to stick to you know a, a bulgarian style let's say we tried to make it sound like it came from there cool one thing I noticed in listening to your Orchestar Bazime recordings is there are so many strange time signatures, like uh, the one song Sandasco Horo. Yeah. Uh, 2216 yeah. time signature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How does that even happen? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of funny to talk about time signatures in folk music, right? Because, it, you know, nobody wrote it out that way. So it, it's it's they're derived from dances, people dancing, and kind of a prolonged conversation over hundreds of years between the dancers and the musicians. So, you know, saying 2216 sounds like really amazing but really they were they're feeling a certain rhythmic pattern right they're feeling a certain rhythmic cell that gets repeated in Romania they have these dances called invertitas for example and those are written or transcribed as 1016, you know, four plus three plus three. But nobody would ever think of it that way when they're actually playing it. It's a feeling. For you, like when you're first trying to get that feeling, do you have to how, how much of it is thinking about those numbers as you play, or is it just that you just listen so many times you get the feel for it? Um, for the most part, you just listen so many times that you get the feel for it. But I guess, you know, it's like anything that you're trying to learn, you know, you try to get at it as many different ways as possible, I suppose. So, you know, just even talking about it with band members about the different time signatures and what the rhythmic cell pattern is, it all comes becomes a part of the conversation. Um, our bass player, he talks, I can't remember if it was for Copanitz or what he uses it for, but when he first 
started playing with us, he was using burritos and tacos, right? Burrito, 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 taco, taco, taco. <laughs> and he would <laughs> he would say this over and over to himself to try to remember what the rhythm was. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, well, do you have a, a favorite piece that you've written for Orchestra Bezime? Oh, well, you know, I actually have only brought in one piece to the group. It's a waltz that, well, the idea started from a a waltz that I wrote for a rock band back in the 90s, actually. Oh. <laughs> and for some reason, I had it in my head that it would be kind of fun to bring it to OBI and just to see what would come of it. So I, I sat down to, to transcribe it. And I started tweaking a little bit here and tweaking a little bit there. And by the end, it was a completely different waltz entirely. It had nothing to do with the first, the original one. I'm kind of curious what it's like being a musicologist and I guess what got you interested in it? So I actually became interested in ethnomusicology specifically after I returned home from Romania in 2008. The field collecting that I had done um, was really gratifying and, and eye-opening, and it was such an amazing experience. And at the same time, there was something missing. When I came home, I, you know, you can collect and and you can learn for yourself how to how to play the music and and that kind of thing, and that's very exciting. But I also wanted to dig into it more, and I didn't know how or really what to do, <laughs> like what, you know, what that meant. I, I actually didn't even know what that meant, but I just knew I felt like there was something I needed to understand better. So I decided to go to an, uh, the University of Minnesota and try a graduate class. Like I actually took Anna Schultz's ethnomusicology class without even enrolling in graduate school. Just because I wanted to see what it was all about. And it was kind of expensive to do it that way. But in the end, it paid off because taking that class made me realize that I really wanted to do it. So, you know, ethnomusicology is different than musicology in that typically musicologists deal with historical time periods of Western classical music, whereas ethnomusicology historically has been focused on world musics the two are starting to come together a little bit more but that's kind of where ethnomusicology has come from it's kind of a marriage between anthropology and music you know through the lens of music cool what would you say makes a good ethnomusicologist you have to be flexible and adaptable just like any you know, good world traveler, because you never, you're never going to come across a situation that you imagine when you're at home, right? You, you get here and everything is going to be different. The situations are going to be different. Even things that you, you think you have planned out, things just don't go the way that you imagine them to go. So you have to be very flexible and, and okay with it and optimistic that, good things are still going to come out of your research, even when there's a curveball that gets thrown at you. That's a good thing. You you have to be a little bit of an extrovert because you're dealing with people and you need to care about people. You need to like people. If you don't, you're really going to be sunk trying to do field work. It's, it's, it's all about, spending time with people, getting to know musicians and, and what they're doing, why they're, why they're doing it, how they're doing it. So you need to be sensitive uh, and empathetic to how other people might think, even if you don't understand it. 
What would you say is one of the curveballs maybe that's been thrown at you in your while you're out in the field? You know, it, it can be absolutely anything from like uh, such and such a festival was supposed to happen and for some reason it got canceled at the last moment and you find yourself in the middle of that town or that village with nothing to do. So what do you, you know, how do you spend your day? <laughs> or it can be something like, you know, you brought all of your equipment and realized that you forgot all the batteries and you don't have your European adapter, you know, so you have all this <laughs> stuff with you and you can't use it. And how do you still record? How do you still record um, the things that you're interested in recording? It can be anything like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of recorders, what kind of field recorder do you recommend for people? Oh, I'm actually a bad person to ask this question because I am one of those people who makes do with like the same uh, equipment for years. Just <laughs> you know, I'm I'm like going on the cheap here and trying to save money. Right now, I'm using a, an Adderall MP3 recorder that I've had for a number of years. But it's been great. It's small. It's lightweight. It does not make any uh, of that, you know, kind of that residual noise, um, even though the the microphones are built in. So I'm all about compact. (laughs) Um, And to be honest, I'm thinking more and more about going to phones, uh, like just maybe investing in a, you know, a high-end iPhone or something like that only because it really can weigh you down to bring all of your equipment with you everywhere you go. And you really need to be ready to record at just about any moment. You know, you don't realize that you're going to end up at some bar at the end of a day and, and some great music is happening or something, you know, something's going down and you didn't bring your equipment with you. So... I'm seriously considering doing something like that. But I also don't necessarily use my recordings for, you know, commercial purposes. So there's a difference there with that. Sure. Yeah. And I suppose with a phone, you don't get asked quite as many questions if you're, as if you're bringing. (laughs) Yeah, because everybody's using them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have used my phone for a number of things, but though you know my phones are not the greatest quality, so I'm thinking about investing. Cool. Well, like I mentioned to you, um, one of my kind of ulterior motives in interviewing you too is um, I'm going on this trip, hopefully next year, kind of a world tour where I would go around to different parts of the world and talk to different people there and try and put together like an audio journal through the podcast. Um, That sounds amazing. So yeah, it would be really fun, I think. But yeah, I I just kind of was wondering what tips you would have uh, in in being a a travel journalist, I guess. (laughs) Tips for being a travel journalist... You know, you can you can plan as much as you can before you leave home, but do it in a in a way that you're not tying yourself down to very very specific dates the entire way through. Because when you actually land and you get over here, you know people are people and and schedules change and and that kind of thing. So you want to be flexible enough to you know, stay an extra day in one place or moving forward quicker than you had planned because somebody will be available the next day and you hadn't planned on that, you know, that kind of thing. So just, again, I guess it's that flexibility that that I was talking about earlier. If you have more, like, specific questions, I might be able to help. But, yeah, yeah. that's probably the, the biggest thing. Sure. I guess... Uh... I'm not going to be doing the kind of official ethnomusicology research and not being able to get in depth or anything because I'll be only staying in a place for a few days yeah, at a time. 
Um, But so I guess like knowing that I will have a limited amount of time, Mm -hmm. um, what do you think would be the best way to like try and experience the music of an area and try and try and learn from it, I guess? Yeah. Are you going during the summertime or during the fall or? Uh, Well, I guess it would probably be in the fall. Uh huh. There, so I suppose that would not be a good time for people on the street as much. <laughs> or, well, it could be. It could be. Um, you know, I guess you, if you can find and locate things like festivals, um, sometimes you can go to um, like the mayor's office and just ask at the office who some good musicians are. It, it depends on the size of the town, um, but small, for smaller towns, sometimes that works really well. Hmm. You know, one thing that we did in 2008, no, actually in 2009, a different trip, like we literally went to this village that we had heard that there were musicians at, and we asked at the local pub who they were. <laughs> and it was a small enough place that people were like, oh yeah, we totally know who you're talking about. And here, let me call them. And they called him up and we were able to meet him like minutes later. Huh. So sometimes that works too. I mean, people love to play for, for reporters and journalists and get, <laughs> yeah. get free publicity. And then one other thing that really um, helped out so much uh, in 2008 was we actually hooked up with a guy who was kind of a self-proclaimed band manager of Transylvanian bands. Oh. And we actually uh, stayed at his mom's house in the village. Um, and he set up a number of meetings for us. So just that one connection with that one person, I think got us maybe five or six visits to five or six different villages with musicians. So that was pretty amazing. Cool. So in Romania now, what is like your average day? Um, Right now, you know, I've only been here for about two months. So right now I'm in the city and the city is large. Uh, There's about 200,000 people with an extra 100,000 students. So about 300,000 people here right now. So my average day is I'll get up and go to maybe a class. Um, I'm taking uh, this violin folklore class uh, at the Gergadima Music Academy, not as a official student, but they're allowing me to attend classes. So I'll go to maybe a class like this or another folk music, uh, folklore class that I've been taking as well. In the evenings, I've been attending rehearsals with a student group uh, called Marty Shorul. And this has been a great group for me to hook up with. They're, it's, it's just a student group, so it's not um, super high-end. But they tour around the country, and they've asked me to tour with them, to perform with them, so we get to get dressed up in Romanian garb and and go play Romanian folk music from the stage. Uh, so that's been great. But other than going to the classes and, and going to the rehearsals, my days are a lot of writing uh, and a lot of reading and a lot of dealing with media that I've already collected. So... For example, I have a huge batch of things that I haven't processed yet from two weeks ago when I went to a a string trio festival in Gerla. So I have to spend quite a number of hours organizing things that I've collected already, which is not exciting or romantic or maybe like Indiana Jonesy kind of thing. It's like it's really boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's boring to talk about. It's actually really cool to review, but it's sure. it's, it's boring to talk about in an in, in an interview. <laughs> hey, that's all right. We uh, I try to get into details and stuff with this show cuz I think that's interesting too in some yeah. ways. So yeah. So do you speak Romanian? I'm learning. 
Um, I've taken a number of classes and officially tested out of the B1 level out of six. That's So that's right. the third level out of six. But, you know, I understand a lot more than I can speak. So um, that's one deficiency that I need to remedy. And it would have been really helpful to have better ability even before I had gotten here. So, but a lot of people speak English. Oh, okay. That's nice. Yeah. Not all the people so, that you need to, <laughs> to talk yeah. to, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, my roommate, Pat, has a question for you. Um, Hi, Pat. He, well, he's not here right now, oh. but um, <laughs> okay. he was wondering, though, like, is Romanian music being preserved, um, Romanian folk music uh, being preserved, or do you think in some ways Romanian pop music is kind of overshadowing it? No, it's being preserved in a very dedicated kind of a way. And a lot of the preservation is happening from the Hungarian side, actually like from Hungarians from Hungary. There's this huge thing called the Tansas movement. And it's, there's this huge network of government sponsored organizations that are working really hard to preserve the folk music in Transylvania, Romania. So it's definitely not dying. There's volumes and volumes of recordings that they have made in the past and are, are continuing to make. Um, they sponsor music and dance camps all over Romania, uh, actually all over Transylvania and in Hungary. And there's a couple in the United States as well to, you know, train in the next generation of, of people to learn folk music from Transylvania. You know, this narrative about like, oh, if, this folk music is dying out or just in this is everywhere in the world, you know, folk music is dying out or something like that. Um, it's a really common thing that people say, and it's probably true in some parts of the world, but it's, you know, people have been so worried about losing it here in Transylvania that um, people have been working on, you know, quote unquote, saving it for the last, um, at least the last well, since Bartok, since since the you know early nineteen hundreds. Hmm. That's interesting. That Bartok kind of was he one of the first ethnomusicologists? Do you think, or at yeah. least in that area? Yeah, yeah. He's kind of considered to be one of one of the first ones, along with Kodai. They they were kind of buddies, and they were traveling around here, collecting folk songs on wax cylinders, and hmm. yeah. What do you think possessed them to do that? Just curiosity at first? or Yeah, I think part of it was curiosity. But also, you know, at, just before that and, and about that time, you know, nationalism was really roaring. Countries were dividing up by national identities. You know, um, Germans were pushing Poles out and Poles were pushing Germans out, you know, of their countries. You know, are you German enough to stay here or, you know, are you French enough to stay in France? This kind of thing. And so this um, kind of national fervor had been going on for a while. And that was reflected in music as well. So, you know, you get kind of folk characteristics being written into classical music. You know, Liszt was well known as a Hungarian composer who was playing in the style of of the gypsies and who else you know Dvorak he was writing in national kind of folk characteristics into his symphonies yeah so Bartok kind of borrowed some melodies that he recorded right or or was he just kind of more influenced by these folk he was really prolific, so he did a number of different things. Uh, for some tunes, he would take the entire melody, like kind of as he collected it, and just set it maybe to a different harmonization and orchestrate it. Um, in other instances, he would take uh, ideas from a melody and completely rework it into something else. 
Um, so he did different things with the melodies that he collected. Hmm. Well, switching gears a little bit, do you have any advice for people who might be interested in applying for grants or fellowships to try and study abroad? Yeah, I mean, I have two different mindsets here. Like there's the the academic side and then there's the non-academic side. And, you know, I think it's harder and harder for non-academics to find grants, I think, to a- apply and do things like this. But I think there are things that still that still exist out there. Um, uh, unfortunately, the Minnesota State Arts Board doesn't offer money for people who want to go outside the state anymore. They used to do that, I think. But there's the Jerome Foundation that offers funding for for composers who want to do research. So that's a good place to look. Also, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, you don't have to be a student or faculty to apply for a Fulbright grant. It helps because of the letters of recommendation that need to be submitted, but you don't have to actually be enrolled in school or or a faculty of a school to apply for Fulbright. So that's that's another thing that people can kind of uh, look into. And Charlie, the, the thing that you're interested in doing for next year, um, you might be interested in looking at, uh, there's a special Fulbright program called the MTV program, which is newer. And they're actually looking to fund people who are doing the type of thing that you're interested in doing, and that is traveling around and writing a blog about the musics that they're encountering. Oh, Um, So you should check the MTV uh, Fulbright grant out. Cool. Yeah. Is it, is MTV, what does that stand for? Or is that? Music television. Like actually MTV. Yeah, it's MTV. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll have to check into that. Yeah. So what's your next blog post going to be? Do you think? I think I might do kind of a simple one kind of outlining the different ways Transylvanian folk music kind of manifests here. So, you know, like there's the institutionalized versions, there's the uh, village folk musicians, um, there's the Hungarian Tanzas musicians. Um, you know, it's all similar music and sharing s- some similar repertoires, all Romanian folk music but it kind of manifests in in different ways. And I think that's kind of what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of explain it and show some different examples in my next blog post. Cool. Well, another random question, since this is almost the Christmas episode, uh, I think it's going to be out on December 23rd. So how is Christmas or the holidays celebrated in Romania? Um, well, they're just getting geared up right now. It's November 30th. They're just, um, they're putting the Christmas market together in the town square, full out, you know, lights and they're building a outdoor skating rink in the square. And a lot of people don't stay in town. They'll go out to their grandparents' place in the villages. Um, a lot of grandparents are still living in the villages, it's the young people that all came to the town. And there's, um, oh, I don't know if I should, I don't want to make anybody squirmy, but they have a a pig killing ceremony for their Christmas feast. Up in Maramuresh, which is northern Transylvania, they also have a lot of folk traditions that kind of morphed into Christmas traditions. A lot of outside carolers and poetry, uh, you know, groups of kids going door to door, singing and and reciting poetry for apples and oranges and this kind of thing.
Well, on this podcast, I have a question chain going. So each guest asks a question to the next guest. Uh, so the last guest, Tommy Kraft, he asked, what has been the most valuable musical lesson or inspiration over the course of your career? And how has that impacted the work you do today? Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> that is an epic question. That is totally <laughs> epic. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, read it one more time. Okay. What has been the most valuable musical lesson or inspiration over the course of your career, and how has that impacted the work you do today? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> gosh. I, I'm sure I have something really intelligent to say. That's just so huge. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This Hungarian violin player told me a number of years ago that there are four things that all musicians need in order to create music. Notes, rhythms, technique, and soul. And how you prioritize them really makes a difference. So in classical music, you might argue that technique comes first, maybe then notes, and then rhythm, and at the end you add the soul. But in folk music, at least in folk music in Transylvania, the soul always comes first. And I guess that's really informed how I look at music and think of music and play music today, that there's no one right way of approaching music as long as you're dealing with all those elements in a balanced kind of a way. Yeah. So do you have a question for my next guest? If there's one thing that you could change about the direction that your work is going in right now, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Huh. How would you answer that? How would I answer that? Uh, <laughs> I just answered a really difficult one. Yes, you did. <laughs> I'll pass. I'll, 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 I don't want to foreshadow sure. the answer. Sure. <laughs> well, Colleen, thank you so much for talking with me here. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. This has been really fun. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Colleen Birch. To hear more of Colleen's music with Saska, visit saska.com, spelled S-Z-A-S-Z-K-A dot com. And for Orchestar Biz Ime tracks, just Google their name, which is spelled O-R-K-E-S-T-A-R-B-E-Z-I-M-E. So I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, maybe going to Star Wars again, hanging out, listening to podcasts, making music. And feel free to stay in touch with me over the break, charlie at composerquest.com. Or find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. Again, if you want to get involved with the world tour, visit composerquest.com/tour. Now I'll leave you with part of an orchestra bezime recording called Makedonsko Devoche. <laughs>